wanted to say that each and every week your singing ministers to my soul. And I thank you guys for for coming and, and gathering together so that we can sing and worship our great God and Savior. Amen. Well, I have recently been uh, reading through a, a children's version of the Pilgrim's Progress with my boys. Uh, and uh, throughout the book, uh, what I've noticed uh, is that uh, the, the little pilgrims, as they are called, uh, encounter many, many trials and dangers uh, as they are on their journey to the celestial city. Uh, as they are following the path uh, set out uh, before them by their king. Uh, and I would classify the, the dangers and the trials that they face into two big categories. Uh, the first would be that there are some dangers and trials uh, that arise out of their disobedience. And there are times when uh, they wander from the path uh, and they should have stayed on the path. Right? And they, they wander into uh, sin. Uh, they wander uh, away from the, the path uh, that they are called to follow out of unbelief. Uh, and what is uh, unfolded then for them is the, the consequences of going our own way. Uh, of wandering away uh, from what Christ has set uh, before us in His Word. So it is better to stay on the narrow path. But there's also a, a second uh, category of dangers and trials that arise for the little pilgrims as they uh, journey on their way to the celestial city. Uh, is not only are there dangers that come from wandering off of the path, uh, there are some dangers and trials that come and arise uh, as they stay on the path. As the little pilgrims uh, enter through the narrow gate and walk through the, the narrow or walk along the narrow path, uh, they encounter certain trials, dangers, and temptations because they have stayed on the path that they are supposed to be on. And these types of trials arise uh, because. Uh, as First Peter describes Satan, what is he like? He is like a roaring lion wandering uh, about seeking whom he may devour. Now, there, there are certain trials and difficulties that we encounter in life as we stay on the path. Uh, and then uh, the, the way to endure in those trials is not by getting off of the path, even though that's the temptation. Uh, but we are called to remain steadfast on the path. To continue uh, through the hardships, not giving in to that temptation. Well, if I step off this path just for a little bit, I will avoid that lion who's sitting right there in the middle of the path. But then I can jump back on later and everything will be great. Right? I can avoid the lion and I can still be following the path. Sort of-ish. And as we follow Jesus in this life, each of us will encounter trials and dangers arriving, uh, arising out of those two different types of circumstances. We will have trials and difficulties in life uh, because we have wandered away from Jesus. And we will encounter trials and difficulties in this life because we have remained faithful to Jesus. I received two emails this week showing me some trials that uh, will arise from faithfulness to Christ in the coming days. First email was about uh, a uh, a bill in Canada uh, that is going into effect. It's known as the the C4 bill. And I don't know if they did that on purpose, but this this bill is going to be explosive and it's going to have implications for uh, Christians in Canada. 
What I'm going to quote to you is uh, an overview of the bill on, from the official Canadian government website. It says, Bill C-4 would amend the criminal code to prov- prohibit certain activities that relate to conversion therapy, which is de- defined as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. The definition also provides for greater certainty that conversion therapy does not include a practice, treatment, or service that relates to the exploration or development of an integrated personal identity, such as practice, treatment, or service that relates to a person's gender transition. And that is not based on an assumption that a particular sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression is to be preferred over another. The bill would enact new offenses to prohibit causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, removing a child from Canada to undergo conversion therapy abroad, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, and receiving a financial or other material benefit from the provision of conversion therapy. So what is being outlawed is any type of speech, really in any type of setting, that may uh, call somebody to place their identity not in their feelings, uh, but in the way that they have been created. If you uh, give that type of counsel, falls under this umbrella of conversion therapy, uh, and there will be charges brought against you. And did you catch that portion of, uh, for parents in, in Canada, are you allowed to remove your child to, to be able to, to get uh, uh, conversion therapy elsewhere? You can't leave the state. Think about that. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's in Canada, right? Well, remember, I got two emails this week. Second email was about a similar ordinance being proposed in West Lafayette, Indiana, which might seem like a a random little town, but in that town, there is a very faithful church uh, that is at the forefront of uh, training up biblical counselors. Now, this church is very well known uh, in the community, uh, and in times past, secular judges have even assigned people... uh, to to go to this church to receive counseling. But now, there is a city ordinance that's being uh, presented. It hasn't yet been passed. That would ban any attempts by biblical counselors to speak biblical truth and love to minors wrestling with sexual orientation or issues of gender confusion. And this ordinance is threatening to fine biblical counselors uh, and counseling centers up to $1,000 a day. And uh, many of you may know, we ourselves at, at ABF, uh, we are, are striving uh, to become a certified biblical counselor training center. Both Bruce and I are certified, and we are, we are in that process of uh, becoming a training center because we see that there is a great need in our community for hope and for help. 
Uh, and that church in, uh, in Lafayette, Indiana, they offer free counseling in their community. Uh, and they have a large waiting list. And that's what we would aspire to and hope to be able to do here. Uh, to be able to offer free counseling. To be able to, to proclaim who Christ is and the hope that he offers to any and all who would come to him. And yet there is a growing consensus in our culture against a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. The Bible very clearly teaches us that our human identity begins and is firmly rooted in the fact that we are all created in God's image. We, be, we begin there. Okay, so no matter what our feelings for the day are, every single one of us has value uh, intrinsically. Again, something a secular worldview uh, would uh, demand but cannot explain why. Only they have to borrow from us to, to have that value. And the scriptures also very clearly teach that our identity is inseparably linked to the biological body that God has given to each of us at birth. We know who we are and what we are to be because of how God has created us. Now, as soon as you separate those out, then it is a huge question. It becomes ambiguous, and then you become lost at sea trying to figure out what are my feelings telling me about who I am. And it's overwhelming. Jesus has very clearly taught we have to find our identity in being created in his image as male and female. And then as Christians, our identity is to be found in Christ, in our union with him. Jesus has also taught very clearly that uh, the sexual union is to be something that is enjoyed only in the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. And everything else is contrary to God's design and is therefore an act of rebellion against Him. Now we as a, church, as a church hold these truths dearly because this is what God has revealed to us in His written Word. Now, and uh, as we see in Canada and as we see in, in Indiana, and, and those places seem really distant and far off, right? But it's not that hard to get a, a city ordinance uh, to be proposed and, and voted upon. We, we have to, to come to grips with the reality that sooner or later, uh, the world is beginning to, to come after uh, any church that would hold to these positions. Uh, but, but also, here's where it comes from being uh, a, a problem for the, the pastors of the church to being a reality for everybody in the church. Because if you, as an individual Christian, would, would hold to this biblical view of marriage and sexuality... Life is going to get harder and harder for you. Just a reality. I don't want it to be that way. You know, and First Timothy says that we are to, to pray for our leaders, that we are to pray that we might live peaceable and godly lives. You know, we long for those times now that we've passed through them, right? Anybody else miss those times? Anyone else take them for granted? But, but this is where we are now. And this is not a trial that arises because we have wandered off of the path. This is a trial that is set before us because we are on the path of following Christ. This is the danger and the trial that we face if we are to continue to walk and follow Christ. But in God's providence and in His wisdom, He has set before us a text of Scripture this morning that I think is going to be profitable and encouraging at this exact moment in time. If you would... Look with me at John chapter 11. 
Last week we, we studied verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> this morning we're going to study uh, verses 7 through 16. I ask you to, to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from the, the Legacy Standard Bible. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And he said these things, and and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will be saved from his sickness. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of actual sleep. And so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, for your sakes, that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Now, it's very interesting, as you you look at the big picture of this chapter, uh, that portion that we just read... Uh, is almost like a, a, a parenthetical scene. Okay? Verses 1 through 6, as we saw last week, uh, is uh, these messengers bringing the news to Jesus that his uh, beloved friend Lazarus is sick in Bethany. And, and the, the plea is that, that Jesus would, would come immediately and heal uh, his friend. But as we saw in verse 6, Jesus waits two more days before setting out. And uh, if you were to, to uh, jump from verse 6 down to, to verse 17, the, the narrative could uh, skip out everything that we're going to look at today, from verse 7 to verse 16, and it, the story would still make complete sense. Right? Verse 6 says, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days in the place where he was. And then if you jump down to verse 17, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Right? The, the, the big picture narrative of this story in John 11 would make complete sense without the scene that we are shown uh, in verses 7 to 16. But what we see here uh, is kind of a, uh, a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Right? Jesus, uh, after waiting the two days, is going to call his disciples to go down uh, with him uh, to Judea into certain danger because what's the immediate response from the disciples hey jesus they were just trying to kill you a few weeks ago is that the best idea that we would go back down there and so jesus responds to his disciples and he is going to instruct them about discipleship going to to teach them uh, what it looks like to follow him And this is going to be instructive to followers of Jesus, both in the the first century and now in the 21st century. 
As disciples of Jesus, we are instructed to follow him at all times, even if that means that we are going to walk with him into certain danger. And yet many of us are faint of heart, right? That doesn't necessarily sound appealing to us. We'd rather run from danger than walk towards it. And at times, that is the appropriate response. Right? That, that is uh, the right thing to do sometimes. But when danger comes from walking on the narrow path of following Jesus, when danger comes because we are carrying our cross uh, and daily following our Lord, then at times there is no room for running or deviating from the path that he has set before us. The best way to endure such dangers and trials is to stay on the path, keeping our eyes firmly upon Christ. And yet, how are we to face this kind of danger that comes to us directly on the path of faithfulness to Christ? That's what we're going to see in these verses. If we're going to follow Jesus, how do we walk through uh, and walk towards danger rather than always fleeing from it? We're going to see three ways that, that we can be faithful in plodding ahead, even in the face of danger and persecution. The first of these three ways uh, is seen in verses 7 through 10. It said that we walk into danger with an urgency to obey Jesus. In verse 7, uh, Jesus uh, began with an emphasis, uh, or there was an emphasis upon the fact that Jesus waited two extra days. Okay? At the end of verse 6, it, it gives us that information. And then verse 7, uh, it says, Then after this, he spoke to the disciples and says, Hey, let's go back down into Judea. And uh, this is uh, two days after receiving the original uh, message. Uh, and again, the disciples re- respond with a respectful protest. Right? And they refer back to uh, the last time that they were in the city of Jerusalem, back in John chapter 10. If you look at uh, verse 31 in John chapter 10, it spoke of the Jews who were picking up stones uh, to, to stone Jesus. And he claimed equality with God, and the, the Jewish leaders understood that, and they were ready to kill him on the spot. Then at the end of the chapter, verse 39, it says, Therefore they were seeking to seize him, And he eluded their grasp. Uh, And at the very end of John chapter 10, from verses 40 to 42, we saw Jesus up in the wilderness uh, on the other side of the Jordan River. And he's in between uh, Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. He had to to run for his life, and he's out basically in hiding, but yet also doing uh, public ministry. Still people are coming to him, and he's still teaching and and healing. uh, And many people are coming to believe. That's what we saw at the end of John chapter 10. And so the disciples are kind of like, things have calmed down a little bit. Can we just stay here? We don't have to go back down uh, where basically, Jesus, you are on uh, the top 10 most wanted list. They they have it out for you. If we go back down there, uh, you'll be killed. And the implication is also, they will be killed. And then in verses 9 and 10, Jesus responds to his disciples. Right? They say, they were just trying to kill you and you want to go back? And then verse 9, Jesus, Jesus answers. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now both uh, the Romans and the Jews uh, 
took whatever daylight hours there were and they divided them up into 12 equal uh, units. So no matter uh, what, uh, how many actual 60-minute hours there were uh, of sunlight each uh, day throughout the year, uh, they always viewed it as 12 hours in the day. So Jesus is speaking of an entire day here. But sometimes it's hard to connect uh, what, how Jesus responds to what was just said, right? It's kind of a, a unique response. Uh, the disciples say, hey, they were just trying to kill you. And Jesus says, well, there's 12 hours in the day. And the disciples would be like, yes, but what, what does that have to do with anything, right? What, what is the connection here? Well, uh, by emphasizing the duration of the day, Jesus is, is once again reminding his disciples that his time is limited. And that while uh, he is here on the earth, he needs to do what he needs to do. Something similar was said uh, at the very beginning of, of John chapter 9. If you, if you turn back there, uh, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is is emphasizing he needs to do and focus upon the mission that God has given to him while he is here. So in short, is Jesus concerned about the danger? No. What is he concerned about? Fulfilling his mission that he has received from God the Father. And uh, this connection of what how Jesus is responding is, is made more clear uh, in the two conditional statements that, that follow uh, after his statement that there are, are there not 12 hours in the day? The end of verse 9 says, uh, if, uh, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, there's there's several things to to note about these uh, two statements. Now, the the first statement, uh, he's speaking about the the normal uh, life experience of somebody in the first century, right? Uh, If you walk uh, in the day along a path, if you're walking, uh, say, from Jerusalem out to uh, Bethany, which is about a two-mile journey, uh, if if you're going to take that walk, when would you want to take it? During the daytime, because at night, uh, there's a likelihood that you're going to, to uh, twist your ankle, stub your toe on a rock and fall flat. Uh, you're going to put your foot into a, uh, in a, in a eroded uh, you know, crevice in, in the path. Now, there's all of that danger. And so the, this first statement is speaking about uh, literal light uh, in connection with a literal path being walked upon. But in the second statement, uh, Jesus is both creating a contrast and completing this lesson for the disciples. Now, that a person walking at night is, more, is sure to stumble because he's walking in darkness. Now, but notice that in this second statement, uh, the reason for stumbling is different. Okay, in verse, uh, verse 9, uh, the picture is uh, you don't stumble because you are able to see uh, from the light of this world. Now, but in verse 10, uh, the, why is it that somebody stumbles? Because the light is not in them. And, and there's, there's multiple layers to this, but I would say that the significance of the first statement is this, that the disciples have in essence said, we can't go back to Judea. They're going to kill you, and then they're going to kill us. And Jesus' uh, response implies that he's going to walk in obedience to God, and that if he is walking in obedience to God, he will not stumble. That all will go exactly according to God's plan. 
And the second statement is focused more upon the necessity of Jesus' disciples to walk according to the light of Christ and to follow after him in obeying the will and plan of God the Father. Right? If, the, if Jesus is walking according to the perfect plan of God, uh, then he, he's going to fulfill what God has for him, and he's going to be perfectly safe in the meantime. And if the disciples are following after Jesus, the same is going to be true for them. They're going to focus upon the right thing, and they're going to rest in God's, uh, the security of God's plan. And back in John chapter 8, verse 12, uh, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, this is the emphasis here. And what Jesus is, is saying is that both he and his disciples must walk in obedience to God, and there is an urgency to this obedience. There's an urgency for Jesus because he knows exactly how much time he has, and it's limited. And it's, it's urgent for us, not because we know the exact time we have, but because we don't know how much time we have. Uh, there's, there's no time to, to be distracted with other things. We must focus upon following Christ and walking according to the light that he has given to us. And if we don't do that, there's a great danger for us. And anyone who has gone out hiking in the hills... Uh, in the late afternoon or in the evening, you know that sense of urgency that you begin to feel as the shadows get longer, right? Uh, and you're like, well, I don't really want to be out here when it's uh, uh, pitch dark. Uh, and I know uh, my wife and I used to love going and, and hiking before we had kids. We could go do things like that. Uh, but we would go hiking in the, in the hills, uh, and we, we would go kind of late in the, in the evening after work sometimes. And, and, and there were some days where we stayed out a little bit too long. Uh, and our nice, leisurely walk in the hills turned into a jog back to the car. Because we didn't want to be out there at night. And we didn't want to be where we could not see uh, where our footsteps were going to, uh, to be. And hiking in the dark is not fun. And that urgent feeling is also what we as disciples of Jesus should feel about our obedience. That there is an urgency for us to walk in the light of Christ. It's not something to be uh, put off, uh, but we are called to be faithful uh, to Him. And the words of Christ in these verses also bring clarity to, to a little phrase. If you turn over to John chapter 13, verse 30, the scene is in the upper room. And Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples. Uh, and then he, he does, uh, he, he explains that, that one among the twelve is going to uh, betray him. And the disciples are like, no, that, that could never happen. And then Jesus says, okay, uh, the one who dips uh, the bread in the, you know, in the morsel is going to be the one who betrays me. And they're baffled. Who could it be? And then G, uh, Judas, guess what he does? He, he dips the bread in uh, and then uh, and they're like who could it be and you're like guys we know who this is going to be and then Judas departs Uh, but look at verse 30 now the very end or it says so after receiving the piece of bread he went out immediately and it was night now what's going to to happen to Judas right he's going to go walking out into the night and does he, is he walking according to the light of Christ? No. What's he going out into the night to do? To betray Jesus. 
Judas is going to stumble. Big time. He's going to reject Jesus. And then what's going what's to happen to his conscience after he betrays Jesus? Just absolutely racked with guilt. Ultimately leading to him taking his own life. That's what it looks like at times when we, when we walk in the darkness. We stumble into sin because we've approached obedience lightly or delayed our obedience to Christ in a particular area. And our stumbling might even lead to a rejection of Christ or even to our own death. So we see in Judas. There is an, an urgency for you and for me not only to look to Jesus in faith, but to obey him. To submit all of our life uh, to his lordship. And this is especially true when we are facing dangers uh, that, that arise from following him. Dangers that arise on the path. And when the world surrounds us and begins to accuse us, to mock us, or to abuse us, we must urgently obey Jesus. Giving faithful testimony concerning who he is and all that he has commanded us to do. What do the apostles do in the book of Acts? The same men, the group of 70 elders uh, in the, the, the Jewish religious leadership, the Sanhedrin, same men who, who had Jesus crucified, now, the apostles are going to stand firmly. They're going to, to re- be beaten by the Sanhedrin, and they're still going to preach. The Sanhedrin is going to say, stop proclaiming Jesus. And they're going to say, we must obey God rather than men. If you want to beat us, that's fine. But the message is not going to change. And do you know what the apostles did? They went out and they rejoiced. They rejoiced after being beaten and they prayed and they worshipped. There, there is a, a promise also implied here. A promise of security given to Jesus' immediate disciples. Again, as Jesus walks in the light, both he and them will be safe from the plans of men. And there is an old saying that every man is immortal until his work is done. That's what we also have to to realize. Jesus was unstoppable until his mission was fulfilled and it was time for him to be betrayed and crucified. The same is going to be true for each of us. So our mission in life is not mere survival. Our mission in life is to honor Christ both in life and in death. And we will be immortal until our work here on earth is finished. Amen? So we walk into danger with an urgency and not with an urgency to survive, but with an urgency to obey and glorify Jesus. Secondly, we walk into danger with a faith to be grown by Jesus. This is seen in verses 11 through 15. He said these things, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him. So Jesus uses this euphemism for death. He says, Lazarus has, has fallen asleep. And the, uh, the disciples uh, think that Jesus is speaking about literal sleep. And they say, that's great. If Lazarus is asleep, he'll be just fine. And the, the ESV and the NESV translate the disciples' words as, if he is asleep, he will recover. But as I read in the, the legacy, uh, it brings out a little bit more to it because the word translated as recover is actually the, the Greek word to save. And the, the legacy 
standard says that he will be saved from his sickness. If this is just sleep, then Lazarus is great. He's going to be recovered. And implication is we don't have to go down and risk our lives. The disciples are like, this is great news. But then in verse 14, Jesus says, okay, you guys are not getting it. And he speaks to them plainly. And there's a recurring pattern in John's gospel of people misunderstanding Jesus, taking him literally when he's speaking figuratively. So Jesus is like, all right, guys, let me put it before you very clearly and plainly. Lazarus is dead. And in verse 15, Jesus provides another discipleship lesson. He says this, but I am glad. Literally, I rejoice for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And Jesus is is rejoicing that he wasn't there to save Lazarus. And this is, that may seem counterintuitive, but, but why? Well, if, if Jesus had been there, there would have been a healing, but there would not have been a resurrection. And at this point in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples believe in him. They are looking to him in faith. And they have come to realize that he is the Son of God, sent to save and rescue them. Now, they, they believe that. And there's plenty of evidence for that. So when Jesus says here that I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. He's not talking about their faith beginning. He's talking about their faith growing. The, the disciples seeing and beholding this miracle that Jesus is going to perform, this is going to grow their faith. But if, if the disciples are going to behold this miracle, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to walk into danger. They're going to have to, to walk into the, the region, just two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus is a wanted man. That's big. But Jesus is saying that he rejoices. Again, this doesn't mean that you and I cannot grow spiritually unless we walk into danger. We don't have to go looking for danger. I think I want to make that clear. We don't have to go around picking fights. Well, Jesus says, this is how I grow. I go pick spiritual fights, and I fight them. It's not what, not what this is saying. The emphasis is upon that we are called to stand firm when dangers approach us or when the path of following Jesus uh, is riddled with dangers. Not that we seek out, but that are simply coming to us. And we have to be convinced that Jesus is going to use those dangers, those trials, whatever persecution we face, face, Jesus is going to use that to grow our faith. There's a, a reason that prior to the 1492, uh, Europeans struggled uh, to cross the Atlantic Ocean. I found this uh, fascinating in a, in a book entitled 1492 by author Felipe Fernandez uh, Armesto. He writes this. He says, Only a foolhardy or greenhorn explorer could make headway in Atlantic navigation. To get much beyond the Azores, 
Now, you had to take a risk no previous adventurer had been willing to face. You had to sail with the wind at your back. One of the extraordinary facts about the history of maritime exploration is that most of it has been done against the wind. To modern sailors, it seems so strange as to be counterintuitive, but it made perfect sense for most of the past simply because explorers of the unknown needed to be sure of their route home. An adverse wind on the outer journey promised a passage home. And to break the mold and sail outward with the wind, an explorer would need to be very ignorant or very desperate. You guys catch that? It's very counterintuitive, right? You would uh, sail into the wind on the way out, because that would assure you that you would make it back home safely. It would be terrifying to go out and not know that if you could get back safely. But if the world was to be explored, someone needed to bravely face the danger and sail out into the ocean without any assurance of being able to return. And Christopher Columbus, for various reasons, mostly just to make a name for himself, embraced that danger and sailed out with the wind at his back, accepting the danger that lay ahead of him. And it was only by facing the danger that the oceans could be explored, and it's only by facing the dangers that come our way that our faith will grow. Fleeing, when we ought to stand firm, will weaken our faith. It won't strengthen it. And caving to the culture when we need to stand as witnesses against it will weaken our faith. It will not strengthen it. We have to keep that in mind. And we can stand firm in the face of dangers and persecution, not because we have great faith, but because we have a great God and Savior in Jesus Christ. And we have an assurance of victory that Christopher Columbus did not have. Right? How did I read Psalm 23 earlier? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what are we to fear? Nothing. And why is it that we need to fear nothing? For you are with me. There's a promise. There's another promise that Jesus gave to his disciples after he uh, was resurrected. As he's giving them the great commission. We are very familiar with that. Verses 19 and 20. says, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have uh, commanded. But verse 18, Jesus says what? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You ever think about that? As I say, that is an exact number, that is an exact amount of authority that has been entrusted to Jesus. How much? All. And so do we need to be afraid? Do we need to fear? No. We can entrust ourselves to him. And Jesus rejoices when our faith grows. And Jesus often grows our faith by having us walk after him into danger. Because we have to trust Him more each and every moment. And if Jesus rejoices, we also ought to rejoice. That's what led the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 say this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith grows as we follow Jesus and as we follow Him into danger. 
Not that we seek it out, but if we are willing to follow him into that danger, then he will grow our faith. We can rest assured of that. Our faith grows as we stand when we are commanded to stand and when we walk when we are commanded to walk. And we walk into danger on the narrow path with an urgency to obey Jesus and with an understanding that Jesus will grow our faith along the way. Then thirdly, we walk into danger willing to die with Jesus. If you look at verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. Now what tone of voice should we should we read those words from the Apostle Thomas? Some have interpreted his words with, with hints of boldness and courage. Others have, have said he's, he's being sarcastic. Still others say that he's being despondent and hopeless. It's kind of the, the Eeyore among the disciples. Well, we might as well go and die. And I, I don't think that there is sarcasm or despondence here. And I think that those that, that focus in on that are, are missing the significance of what Thomas is saying. Because what's the gist of what he's saying? What is he willing to do? He's willing to go and die with Jesus. And it's interesting that the Apostle Thomas gains a nickname from a later incident, but his courage here in this verse is overlooked. He's willing to die with Jesus. He's willing to follow him to certain death. As Leon Morris writes, Thomas looked death in the face and chose death with Jesus rather than life without him. This is an important discipleship lesson for each and every one of us. If we have taken up our cross, if we are denying ourselves daily and following Jesus, where does that carrying of the cross lead? To our death. In, this, in the spring of 1194, during the, the Third Crusade to the, the Holy Land, Crusader Henry of Champagne went to a mysterious castle in the rugged mountains uh, of the Naziri uh, in Syria. And he met with Abu Mansur, the notorious old man of the mountain. And this man was the leader of the most dreaded commandos of the era, a group known as the Assassins who were specially trained to sneak into enemy fortresses and assassinate a king or other key leader on whom a contract had been settled. And Abu Mansur welcomed Henry and entertained him with a lavish feast. And at the end of the feast, to prove the, the loyalty of his soldiers, Abu Mansur called in two of his assassins, and he said, Go throw yourselves off the cliff. And the two men went, and they threw themselves off the cliff. And we hear that story, and it's shocking, right? It, 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 it shocks our sensibilities. But what we really have to contemplate and think about, what is Jesus calling us to do? Right? Our, our good, loving, faithful shepherd who cares for us, what is, what is he commanding us to do? He's calling us not just to throw ourselves off the cliff, that's dying once. What is he calling us to do? To die to ourselves each and every day. 
as many times throughout the day as is necessary. And we do this in worship of Him. We are commanded to die to ourselves, to sacrifice our desires and our ambitions for His glory. So when the, when the world summons us or questions us, says, hey, come gather, give an account right here and right now for what you believe. We are to faithfully represent our King. We are to put His honor and glory ahead of our own livelihood. This is what Moses did when he confronted Pharaoh. This is what David did when he faced Goliath. This is what the prophet Daniel did before the kings that he served. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did before Nebuchadnezzar. This is what John the Baptist did before Herod. And what was John the Baptist killed for? His view of marriage. This is what the apostles did. Yes, at the arrest of Jesus, they all fled. Oh, but they were faithful after. And this apostle, Thomas, church history says that he went into India, that he carried the gospel further into the east than anyone else. But he was martyred when someone stabbed him with a spear for preaching Christ. You and I are called to do the same. We may or may not be martyred for our faith. We may or may not lose our jobs for our faith. We may or may not lose relationships with friends and family because of our faith and loyalty to Jesus. We may or may not experience persecution and ridicule from the world. But the likelihood of those things happening is increasing. And I think we need to be prepared. As servants, as followers of Jesus, we need to prepare our hearts and minds now for those moments. And setting before our, ourselves, His honor is more important than my livelihood. And knowing that if we, if we do that, if we place His honor, His glory ahead of our livelihood here on the earth, uh, then we are actually living... As if he does have the power to raise the dead. Which, by the way, is the point of this whole chapter. Right? And if we really believe that Jesus has authority over life and death and everything, and we, and we don't cling to this life, we want to live faithfully before him, but we are willing to, to lose our life in the here and now in order that we may gain Christ. Because he is infinitely more valuable and everything else that this world has to offer. Because Jesus is the Son of God who came to live and die to save sinners, we are able to walk into danger with an urgency to obey Him, with a faith to be grown by Him, and with a willingness to die with Him. And we do this not because we are so strong or because our faith is so great, 
but because our faith is in Jesus. He must be the object of our faith, the one that we look to and trust in. Amen? And he will be the one to carry us through whatever we encounter on the path. Because as we follow that straight and narrow path, who is with us all along the way? And we don't want to explain to him, well, I deviated from the path. I jumped the path here because there was danger ahead. What would Jesus say in that instance? Did you not believe that I was with you? Did you not believe that I would walk with you through that danger? And it's those moments of unbelief that we're tempted to wander. But may we remain faithful. Amen?